0: If you've been with us, we've been doing this series that we've done for for many weeks now, probably 11 or 12 weeks, called Foundations. And We've been teaching through some foundations for our church to go forward in, and we find ourselves at the end of this series. Today we're going to talk about the mission of the church, part two. We're actually calling it the grand mission of the church, part two. So if you have your notes from last week, you can reuse those, or you can ask for new notes. We have notes circulating if you need notes, just let one of our men know and they can get you those notes. But today we're doing part two of a lesson that we started last week called the Grand Mission of the Church. And this is going to complete a nine sermon series that took us at least 11 weeks because I know there were a couple part twos in there. But take a look at that list of our foundations here at Crossroads Church because these are what we're going to go forward on and, and set as our foundations for Crossroads for hopefully many years to go to come. And so if you were not a part of this series or missed some of those, our our high recommendation is that you go and find those online and re-listen to them. Even if you just need a refresher, please go listen to them. Take some notes. um, Study those passages together because these are going to be really important for what we're seeking to do here at Crossroads Church. So we encourage you. Today we're going to end this, this long series called Foundations Today as we talk about the grand mission of the church part two. And see how fitting it was? We got it in right before Easter. It just happened to be we finished our series right before Easter Sunday. So come back next week, invite your unsaved loved loved ones, family members, co-workers, neighbors. Let them know the gospel is going to be proclaimed. And next week should be a special week as well. But today, before we get to part two of the church and the grand mission of the church, do you have some people in your life that you treat with great respect? Because there should be a list of people that you treat with great respect. Think about who those people would be who get your utmost respect. Who are those people? Well, I'm gonna give you 10 people that should get your utmost respect because of who they are and what they do. Number one, your spouse. Your spouse should get your most utmost upro- upmo- respect and the reason for that is because they know all your secrets. <laughs> all of them. Most all of your secrets are known by your spouse. That's a person you wanna keep on your good side. Number two people you should treat with great respect are your kids. Treat your kids with respect. That goes the other way, too, kids. Treat your parents with respect, but your kids, because they will be your eventual caretakers, correct? (laughs) If you want to end this life on a positive note, a comfortable note, treat those kids with respect. I see some kids nodding, going, yes, that's right, mom and dad. Be careful how you treat us. Here's another person you should treat with respect. Your mechanic. They work on your brakes. And there's a lot of hills and mountains around here. That's not someone you want to offend easily, okay? Treat your mechanic with great respect. Here's another person. Your waiter and waitress. Treat them with great respect. Give them a hearty tip because there's plenty of saliva to go around. I don't want to think about it too long, but uh, treat your waiter and waitress with respect. Here's another person you don't want to offend. Your dentist. Because he's literally holding a drill while your mouth is open. That is not someone you want to offend. Keep your dentist on your good side. How about this one? Number six, your accountant. Where's Travis? Keep, keep your accountant on good terms as well because he can ruin your entire life with one misplaced number. That's all it takes. Alright, Travis? Treat him with great respect. Number seven, your mother. My mom just raised her hand. Treat your mother with great respect because no one would suspect her if you suddenly died. (laughs) Mom would probably get away with it. So treat mom with great respect. Keep her on your good side. Here's another person you want to treat with great respect. Your doctor, of course. Treat your doctor with good respect, whoever that person is, because they can post your chart on Facebook or Instagram or any of the several social medias, and that's not something you want as public knowledge. So treat your doctor or your kid's doctor with great respect, right? We have our pediatrician here, so we have to treat her with great respect, too. Uh, How about this one? Number nine, your barber. Because they can either take a little or a lot off the top. Unless you want the pastor, Todd. Treat your barber with great respect. And the final person you should treat with respect is your pastor, Because you could literally be his icebreaker one day. (laughs) You could be all ten. So unless you want that to happen, treat your pastor with great respect. So that doesn't happen. Of course there's one more people you should treat with great respect. And that's where we're going today. It is your church. You want to treat your church with great respect because, as we're going to learn and be reminded of today, you cannot follow Jesus without these people. Not the way that God desires. So we're going to talk about the church today. If you remember our outline, we started this outline last week. We have four things that we're talking about under the grand mission of the church. Number one, what is the church? We talked about that. We'll review that here in a little bit. Number two, why do we need the church? Those two things we covered last week. And these two we left for this week. How do we become a part of the church? Where's Echo? I paid attention to her. She's not here. She's taking care of the kids. She said last week I had the word apart together, and which is kind of the opposite of what I'm going for. How do we become a part of the church, brought into the church? And number four, what is our grand mission as the church? That's how we're going to end today. But as a little bit of a review, we talked about what the church is not last week, if you remember that. What is the church not? The church is not a building. And I hear many of us say this still to this day, and it's really hard to untrain yourself to call this building that we meet in here the church. But it's not the church. And we'll, we'll talk about that here again today. It's also not a hangout or a club. It's not this guy on his own. Your leaders. I hate crossing myself out, but I have to. <laughs> Me without you, I am not the church. The leaders are not your church unless the whole body is a part of it. It's also not just the service. Even though we are grateful for a service, we gather to meet together and hear the word of God and worship together. That's a part of what the church does. But by itself, it's not the church and the church is also not the final authority. What is the final authority for Christians? God. God is. God and what he has said in his word. That is the final authority for our lives and for the church. And it all kind of culminates to this one point. We are the church. Those who believe in Jesus, and we'll talk about that, those who belong to Jesus Christ are all a part of the church. That means we together make up the church. Not individually. The only time we are in church are when we're together, and that's how we're going to talk about today. What is our grand mission of being the church? That's where we're headed today. Last week, we talked about what the church is, and from Scripture, you get these three metaphors. It's a body, it's a bride, and it's a family. And If you weren't here for that part one, I really encourage you and suggest that go, go listen to that, because the Scripture talks a lot about the church. It doesn't leave us hanging. It lets us know very, very clearly that we are the body, the bride, and the family of God. And if we don't have the church, here's what happens if we do not have the church. Without the body, we become disjointed. If we're not the bride, we have no future with the bridegroom. And if we're not a part of the family of God, then we miss out on all the blessings reserved only for the family. I hope you believe you want to be a part of the church. Those are three things that you want to be true about you, that you are not disjointed. You are a part of the bridegroom and you are a part of the family of God. But also number four, as I've already mentioned, we cannot become like Jesus without the church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you cannot become who you need to become without the people in the audience today, without your church body? Because it's true. And God is the one who built it that way. Did he have to? Not necessarily. But he did build it that way so that we need each other to accomplish this great goal, which we will end on today. But here's our question today that we want to start with. How do we become a part of the church? How do we belong to the church? You guys remember this movie from the uh, 70s or whatever it was? You guys remember that? The golden ticket scene of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and five people in the whole world were invited to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory well, how do you become a part of the church? It's not getting a golden ticket in your Bible or Mr. Joel hands you one on the way out and says you're, you're officially welcome to Crossroads Church. That's not how you belong to the church. But there is a membership process to the church. And I'm not talking about necessarily Crossroads Church, okay? We need to make a distinction because Crossroads Church, as many of you know, is welcome to anybody, welcome to everybody in the community, And anyone we know can come to Crossroads Church. Although I will say this, we are contemplating and praying about a membership process here at Crossroads Church. And the reason for that is because God's church, God's ultimate church, God's communal church, has a membership process. And I want us to find that right from Scripture. How do we become part of the grand corporate church that will be a part of the kingdom of God for the rest of eternity? It's actually very simple. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God made it very simple for anyone to become a part of his church? And we want to talk about this today. The number one is very obvious. And this is the person we just sang about. In order to become a part of Christ's church, we have to believe that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. And I will highlight that only. It's conditional. Remember John 3.16? What does it say? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish and will have everlasting life. It is conditioned on one thing, that you believe, that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. I hope you believe that already. I trust that many of you do already believe that. But Jesus is the one who told us this. In John fourteen six, Thomas is speaking to him, one of his disciples. And he said this, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we possibly know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm all of it. I'm the way to God. I'm the truth of God. I am the life of God. If you want all of those three things, you find them only through Jesus, the Savior of the world. In Acts 4, The apostles were speaking and they said this in Acts 4. I believe this is Peter speaking. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. These Pharisees, these Jews, had kicked Jesus aside like he had no value. Put him on a cross. Killed him. Acted like he had no value whatsoever. And Peter said, that's very interesting and very sad because you, the builders, rejected Jesus. But he has actually become the cornerstone, the most important piece of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Do you notice what Jesus is doing? Do you notice what Peter is doing? They're drawing a line, aren't they? They're drawing a line to say it is not whatever you believe, it is not whatever you think about God. You must believe in the one who is the savior? Jesus said, and excuse me, the prophet said in Isaiah 43 referring to Jesus Christ, I I am the Lord. And besides me there is no savior. Where are we without Jesus? We're doomed. We're utterly doomed. There is no other, there is no rival, there is no equal, there is no contingency, there is no plan B. Without Jesus Christ there is no savior. It can be no savior. The prophet has said it. Jesus said it himself. Peter the apostle said it. And there we find Jesus. That's not going to show up, is it? Every now and then I get one of these slides. It just doesn't like it. And it shows up on mine, but not yours. But uh, I'll show you here on my screen. It's a person drawing a line in the sand. That's what Jesus is doing by saying that I am the Savior. I am the Savior of the world. I am the only Savior of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And without me, you cannot come to the Father. Nope, did not mean to do that. Hello, everybody. Hello. How's everybody doing? Let's flip that right around. Let's make this even funnier. Come on. Sometimes one thing, see, what is that in the middle there? Morris. Who is it? Morris the Moose? Okay. Sometimes when tech fails on you, you just go with it. No, I don't want me. I definitely don't want me. Okay, we're going to try to get a back on track here. There it is, see? Sometimes you got to take a journey to get to the screen you want, and there, it was worth it, right? It was worth it. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He's he's saying to the entire of humanity, I'm it. I'm everything. I am the alpha, if you remember that lesson we talked about. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I'm everything. If you find me, you find everything. If you miss out on me, you miss out on everything. Everything. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. In fact, I'm the only Savior of the world. And sadly, in our society, in our culture, there are many false Saviors. Because wouldn't that be a great tactic of the devil? To slip in a forgery. Someone that's similar. Someone that's kind of like Jesus. So that you can lead people away from the authentic Savior. And unfortunately, we have these false Saviors all over the world. Buddha and Zen cannot save you, will never save you. Can do nothing to heal your soul or cleanse you from your sin. The God of Islam, the Muhammad, the the prophet Muhammad, can do nothing to save you from your sins. Now, if it's the right God of the Bible, of course, that's a different story. But if it's not, if it's a made-up God with a different text, with a different version of himself, that Savior can do nothing for you. Whoever these guys are, I'm not even going to try to say those names because there's no way I could get close. Of the Hindu faith, can do nothing to save you. They will utterly fail you. The Pope cannot save and has not saved literally anybody. Okay? He can do nothing for your soul, can cleanse you of no sins whatsoever. In fact, I will even say Pastor Todd. I'll put myself on there. I'm a bad savior. I'm a really bad savior. If you look to me for your salvation, you're going to be in very big trouble because I cannot save anybody. I have never saved one single soul. Did you know that? None of these people can save you. In fact, you cannot save yourself. Your own goodness cannot save you. You cannot reform yourself. You cannot tweak yourself, modify yourself, work on your morality, and get to a better place where you're now in a position to cleanse yourself of your former sins. It cannot happen. And if you try with all of these people... You will die. It's that simple. You will die. Because all of those people can only do one thing. They can lead you further and further into your sins. But there is a Savior. Amen. In Isaiah 45, the prophet continues. He says, Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth need to hear this. For I am God And here's drawing the the line in the sand. There is no other. Now that is unfortunately what makes Christianity sometimes hard to share because it's a hard thing to tell people who believe in other saviors and other religions and other gods that there is no other God. There is no other savior. There is no one else who can help you besides Jesus Christ. Our culture, as you know, does not like to hear that there's one way. Correct? Correct? They want to hear there's numerous ways and numerous methods to do things. So if you like Jesus Christ, that's great for you, but I'm going to make up my own system. The problem is is it's not going to work because there's only one Savior. And Jesus said, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other Savior, no other God that can help you. In Acts 16, if you remember the story, they brought this jailer, Um, the gospel, the jailer had been watching over the apostles and there was this great earthquake and their chains fell off, the walls were broken down and they had every opportunity to leave and the jailer thought that he was doomed, he was going to kill himself because under his watch, the apostles had got free but they don't leave. They turn back to the jailer and say we're not leaving, we're here to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you and he says this phrase to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you notice what what they say in return to him? Believe. But they didn't put a period there, did they? Believe in who? The Lord Jesus. The Savior of the world. And you will be saved. You and your entire household. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved today. But it must be Jesus. Jesus must be your Alpha. He must be your Omega. He must be your Foundation. He must be your Christ. And when that happens, and only when that happens, you will be saved. That is the promise of God's word, the promise of John 3.16, but you must believe in Jesus. How do you become part of a church? I I had this as number two, but I actually changed it to 1A because I believe this is simply the same action, just looking at it from another perspective. It's not really a two, it's more of a 1A. Repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ. You guys have heard that before, right? Repent. Repent. And follow Jesus. If you look back there on our wall, it says, Mark 1.17, come follow me. That's a really important part of Christianity. But is it secondary? No, I believe it's primary. Because I believe it's the exact same action, only looked at from another angle. Now, you've heard this phrase before, two sides of the same coin. Right? I could show you one side of a coin and tell you this side has heads. Would I be telling you the truth? Yes. Would I be telling you the entire truth? No. Because if I flip it around, on the other side is tails. Well, that's similar to what faith and repentance look like. If I tell you to believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Am I telling you the truth? Yes. If I tell you to repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ, am I telling you the truth? Yes. But guess what? You need to hear both. Because Jesus Christ said both. And that's really what repentance is. Repentance is turning around. You're following your sin, you're following your own vices, you're following your dreams and your wishes and your desires and that's when Christ says to you, wrong way, Todd, wrong way. You're going the wrong way. If you continue down this path, you will find yourself in destruction. Turn around and follow me. Now, when I was growing up, we had a little bit of a different phrase and I want to be careful here because I do not want to stomp on this phrase. I do not want to make anyone here squirm and feel uncomfortable if this is the way it was presented to you. And I found this little graphic on the website, which I found was interesting, and I decided to read that article. Is it biblical to ask Jesus into your heart? And I read this article and thought, that's a very good article. And it is a very good article, if you find it. Because the answer that this person came to was, yes, but it's messy. Yes, but it's difficult. Because guess what the Bible never says? It never says, ask Jesus into your heart. Does it mean it can't work? No, it doesn't mean that. If someone can sit with you and discuss what that means and talks you through the biblical understanding of what that means, I believe it can work and has worked before. I believe some of us in this room have done such a thing and have received salvation of our sins. The problem with this phrase is it's not what Jesus said. And so sometimes it's a hard, difficult road to get from something that we made up to help people to the actual understanding of what Jesus said. Because Jesus said words like this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did not say, ask Jesus into your heart. He said, repent. That's an important word in the Christian faith. That's an important word when you're sharing the gospel. It's not a word that was common in the gospel presentations that I heard growing up. It's a word that I sort of had to dive into and figure out later in life, going, that word's really important, to repent. Repent. In 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to the church, and he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God has a very different concept of time than we do. So he says, do not consider God's slowness in fulfilling his promise as either laziness or forgetfulness or anything else, because his slowness to fulfill his promise in coming back to this earth is actually for your benefit. Why has Jesus not come back to this earth? Why has he not returned back to this earth to receive his people and bring us up to heaven? Well, it could be for some in this room. It could be God is showing patience toward you so that you would reach repentance. Because God's great desire is not that any should perish. God does not desire anybody to end up in hell anybody to die in their sins. What is his desire? That all should reach repentance. So the reason Jesus Christ has not come back to this earth is he's going to give every possible opportunity to those he loves to hear the message of the gospel and to turn from their sins and embrace Jesus by faith. Aren't you thankful for that patience? I'm thankful because at age 26, I believed I had used up God's patience. And I thought at age 26, when God got my eyes back on Scripture that I was possibly doomed. And that's when God said to me, Todd, I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. I'm steadfast in my love towards you. And I have every desire for you at age 26, Todd, to turn around, to leave your sins, to leave your vices, and to embrace Jesus by faith. And really, that's what repentance is. Okay, Repentance is understanding that if you continue on the course that you're on, you will die. That's not something a pastor loves to preach about, but it's something I have to preach about. Because every single person needs to understand that, and I mean literally every single person. If we continue down the road that we've been placed on by this world, by our sins, we will die. Because the bridge is out. And regardless, even if you ask Jesus into your hearts, although I believe that can help someone understand the gospel, if you do not repent and you ask Jesus into your heart, it does no good. Because Jesus is the very one that said, no, no, no. Don't just ask me into your heart. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. The sins that you're following, the the whims and the desires and the dreams that you're following are not my dreams. They did not come from God. They came from your own flesh and from the devil. And if you continue to follow those things, you will find something tragic. So in order to find Jesus Christ, you've got to make a quick U-turn. And you must say to yourself, I am going the wrong way because God has shown me the error of my own ways. And then once you turn around, guess who you see? There he is with arms wide open, ready to receive any and every sinner who understands that they are doomed without him. And as soon as you turn around and you see Jesus, you embrace him by faith. In Luke 5, Jesus answered them, It said this, those who are well have no need of a physician. I would not instruct someone righteous to turn around. The problem is, according to Romans, there are none righteous. No, not one. So I have not come for the the well because the well have no need of a physician. Who have I come for? Those who are sick, which guess who that is? Everybody. Yeah, raise your hand, Joel. Because my hand is raised as well. Every single person, Joel gets it, every single person starts spiritually sick. And Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous. What have I come to call? Sinners to repentance. To tell them to turn around. Stop following anything else and anyone else and turn around and follow me. In fact, you can find this in the Old Testament. Sometimes when I'm on the campuses, when I've spent 12 years with young adults, the question they'll ask is, if this is true, how did people get saved in the Old Testament days? It's a good question, right? How did people get saved before Jesus came to this earth? Well, I want to tell you it's the very same method. Yes, they did not know Jesus' name. They did not know any of his miracles or any of his teachings by that point. So they had to look forward to the Messiah. We have to look in the rearview mirror to what Jesus did upon the cross. But these people had the same strategy. In Ezekiel 18, the prophet says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? To which the answer is absolutely no. And not rather that he should... Turn from his way and live. Do you notice that? Don't just accept me as you believe in that I am alive and that I exist. Turn around. Stop following your evil ways. In verse 32 he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anybody. Man, aren't you thankful about that with your Lord? The Lord does not desire condemnation, does he? What does he desire? John three seventeen. Salvation. He did not send Jesus to condemn the world. He sent Jesus to save the world, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Turn and live. It's that simple. It's so simple, a child can understand that. In fact, I instruct my children all the time, stop doing that. Stop tipping yourself back in the chair, because I've done that before. I've seen some of you do that before. That's going to turn out badly. Put your chair upright and be well. Save yourself and save your head from a head injury and a concussion, because that's what good, loving parents do. And so, when Jesus sees us following our errors, what does He tell us to do? Turn around, turn around, and follow Me. So, as we said on our back wall, Mark 1.17 says that, but so does Matthew eight twenty two. Jesus said to him, "Simply follow Me." But in order to follow Jesus, what must you do? You must repent. You must repent of the ways that you're going and you must set your eyes upon the Savior, upon the Christ, upon the only Messiah there is, and you must follow him. Follow him. Give your life to him. Hand your life, hand your keys, whatever phrase you want to use, over to the Messiah and say, I'm doing a bad job guiding my own life, Jesus. You take over from now on. I will follow you. I will listen to you. Whatever you say. And there's one more thing before we transition to the grand mission of the church is how do you become a part of Christ's church? Now, again, I want to be careful here because I do not believe that you have to be baptized for your sins to be removed. Okay, I think the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, the moment you repent of your sins, you are saved. And I, I believe there have been people that have had great chunks of time between the moment they were saved and the moment they were baptized. And I believe that person was saved the moment they place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But I also believe that Christ wants us to be baptized. It's so important. And I'm going to show you that from Scripture. That to be a part of his church, to be the, part of his church the right way, Jesus wants every single one of us to be baptized. That's an important thing for us. In Matthew 28, if you remember this, this is the Great Commission. Does any of you remember this? Jesus sent his disciples out and said, from now on, this is going to be a team effort. I'm going to send you out. I'm going to leave this earth. I'm going to go back to heaven. So from now on, I want you to do this. So he says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that, Jesus? Well, it's very simple. Baptizing them in the name of the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If you want to make a disciple of Jesus Christ, help set their eyes on Jesus Christ and then simply encourage them to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then begin their journey of teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded us. We've talked about how important the commandments are. In Acts 2, Peter said to the people that were listening to his sermon, Repent, there it is again, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice that? Two things. Which again, I believe trust in and repent are the same thing. I don't believe anyone has ever repented without believing. And I don't think anyone has ever really believed in Jesus without repenting. So can I say believe? Yes. Can I say repent? Yes. Because I believe they're the same action. They're simply taking our eyes off of anything else, anyone else, and setting them on Jesus Christ. But then there's a second step. Be baptized. And it's right there in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. How do you join the church? Repent and be baptized. It's that simple. How do you join God's great mission, God's great commission? Repent and be baptized. It's that simple. And so in Acts 2, he's speaking again to the people, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. That doesn't mean doctrinally look to yourself for salvation. It means simply understand that you need a Savior and do what's necessary. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Now, that's something a pastor likes to hear. Right? 3,000 souls in one day. Now that's a good day. That was a good sermon. <laughs> 3,000 souls got baptized and followed Jesus Christ. That's an amazing story of what God did simply by the preaching of his word. And that's why we do this, people. I cannot save anybody. My methods, my intellect, my academia, my trickery, I cannot save anybody. But Jesus Christ and his word, as soon as it's proclaimed, can embed into the soul and can share with each of us the need for Jesus Christ. The need to be saved. But baptism is important. And you know why it's important? It's because it symbolizes everything that regeneration and new birth is all about. When we go into the water, it's a symbol of dying, isn't it? That's what going into the water is symbolizing. We're dying, but not physically dying. And not even spiritually dying. What are we dying to? To sin. And to self. That person is no longer Following sin and following self is no longer. That person is now dead. But what happens the moment you're brought under the water? You're brought out of the water. And what does that symbolize? New birth, regeneration, alive with Christ. I am no longer this person. I am now longer a person. I am no, from this moment on, I'm a person who loves and follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why baptism is so powerful because you're basically saying to yourself and to your God and to everyone who's witnessing it, I am his and he is mine. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, we encourage baptism here at Crossroads Church. If that's something you don't understand, if that's something you have questions about, if that's something you've misunderstood, please come and speak to us, because we want you to understand the right concept of what baptism is. So there it is. It's very simple, and I know we raced through it. But how do you become a part of Christ's church? It's simply believe that Jesus is the only Savior. Repent, turn around from your sins, and start to follow him by faith, and be baptized. And I know many in this room have done this already, and I'm thankful for that, that you guys have understood what it means to truly give your lives to Jesus Christ, because that's what it looks like. And as soon as you do those things, you are a part of his church. You are part of the greatest purpose and mission that was ever instituted. Nothing compares to the church. And guys, I've tried. I've lived a lot of my life away from the church, doing other things. And then once I understood the importance of this purpose, God gave me this desire to be a part of the church more than anything. To lead the church. Because I could not find any greater purpose under the sun than his church. Because the church is eternal. And everything else that I was chasing was temporary. So how do we become a part of the church? Believe in Jesus, and be baptized. Now let's finish on this today because there's a grand mission that the church has, and this is what makes the church so glorious. I could sit up here today and say, hey, listen, join the church because we want more people. You know, we want our seats full. We want, we want to be able to, you know, share great things about what's happening here. We want more money. Any, any of those things I could share with you today and try to get you to join Crossroads Church. But that's not what this is about because there is a grand mission of the church that God himself gave us and I want to share these things with you today. Do you guys ask questions like this? Do you ever find yourself asking questions like this? Maybe not now, but maybe past, in your past. Have you ever asked a question, why are we here? What is this about? you ever find yourself asking those questions? Because again, young adults ask those questions. I remember as a young adult asking that question. Why are we, why are we here? What is this all about? What is the purpose here? Like I'm going to ask this question right now about what we're doing today. Why are we here? Why do we do this? Why do we come here on a Sunday at ten thirty in the morning to sing, talk about moose? I almost said mooses. <laughs> talk about moose. Have a little icebreaker. Why do we preach the word of God? Why do we worship together? Why do we do such things? What is the purpose of this? And I think we need to ask those questions. Because you know what happens if you don't? You end up going nowhere if you don't question things, if you don't understand why we do what we're doing, you end up going nowhere. And you know what Jesus wants us to understand? His will. His will. That's why there's 66 books of divine revelation so we don't have to go, what are we doing? What is this about? We can know what this is about. And I want everyone to have the confidence to know here at Crossroads Church what we're doing. Why are we here? Why do we do what we're doing today and on Wednesday? and many other days of the week. Why? We're going to start with this. It's very simple. Copy Jesus. Copy. There's other words we can use, emulate. But I like the word copy. I think it makes sense. I think it sticks in my mind for what I'm actually trying to figure out. Copy Jesus. Do what Jesus did, right? Now we have a uh, complex relationship with the word copy. (laughs) Copy. I'm not gonna ask you how many of you did this in your school setting, cheated on a test by looking at someone's answers. I saw someone shake their head no. Never happened. these things? Never? No. I got busted once actually for copying. I did. And I wasn't even copying the smart kid, which was really dumb. <laughs> kid was he, was, he was almost as dumb as me, maybe worse, but I decided that I didn't know the answers. I'm gonna look at his answers and the teacher caught me right away and I got a zero. Bad idea. Um, We have a complex relationship with copying, don't we? Copying sometimes doesn't sound like a good thing, but in some contexts, it's a really good thing. In Genesis 1, if you know anything about how God created the world, how did he make man? How did he make us? God said, let us make man in our image. We're going to make man just like we are. Okay? And after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Because God has dominion. So he gave dominion to his, to his man and his woman. He said, we're going to make them in our image. They're going to be like us. Isn't that a cool thing? That God didn't create animals that way. He didn't create plant life that way. He created mankind to be like him, to think like him, to operate like him, to reason like him, to love the same things that he loves. In Ephesians 5, we find this very tender-hearted commandment. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now think back to your own children, or think back to the day when you were a child. Isn't this something every child does at some moment? Tries to be like their parent. You know, I, my kids are always putting my shoes on and clomping around the, the, the house, and you know, they think it's funny because my feet are so big, but um, they, lo- they want to be like daddy. They try to imitate daddy. In fact, the other day, it was here. I took a picture because I thought <laughs> it was such a special thing. My son was up here at the pulpit, and I said, Haddon, I'm going to pause right now and take a picture because it was such a delight of my soul to think that maybe one day, possibly, Haddon could follow in his dad's footsteps. And honestly, Mom, one of the greatest joys of my life was when Dad, my dad, would say, Todd, I'm proud of and I believe the reason he would say that is because I was going similar directions that he was going. Because it's a delight of godly parents, of loving parents, to see their children following in their footsteps. Who loves that more than anybody? Our God does. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Copy me. Copy me. Do what I do. Do what I think. Think how I think. Go how I go. In 1 John 2, the Apostle's writing, and he says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know? Because you have a date in your Bible? Maybe. Because your parents remember the experience? Perhaps. But according to Scripture, the way that you know you're in Christ is whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Go the same direction. Do the same things. Whatever Jesus did, you do. However Jesus spoke, you speak. Whatever Jesus spent his time on, whatever Jesus spent his talents on, whatever Jesus thought was important, whatever Jesus hated, whatever Jesus loved, do the very same thing. It's that simple. One day when it was really deep snow, I took my children out into the snow and I noticed them struggling because the snow was so deep. So one simple instruction I gave them is walk in the same footsteps that daddy walks in. So I would walk and I would sink down into the snow and then my children would walk in the very same footprints. And I noticed that when they did that, they struggled a whole lot less than when they tried to make their own. Isn't that a good analogy? Follow Jesus Christ by copying him. Peter says it this way, as obedient children, because that's what we should be, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We talked about repentance. Do not do that anymore. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why, Lord? Because you shall be holy for I am holy. It's that simple. Copy me. Whatever I'm about is what you should be about. So if I'm holy, which God is, he is holy, 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 his instruction for us is very simple. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because that's what it means to copy your God, is to line up right behind him and do the very things that he does. In fact, it's going to be such an important thing for us to do. It's going to be the marks he looks for at Judgment Day. Were you holy? Did you strive for the same things? Did you copy Jesus? Because if you did, of course you belonged to him. And if you didn't, there was a problem. So we're not here. Unfortunately, America tells us we're here for the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But God says it opposite. He says, no. We're here to pursue holiness. Holiness trumps happiness. Because happiness is fleeting, is it not? You can have happiness today... You could lose it by this afternoon. You could have it this week and next, thing, next week tragedy can strike and your happiness can go down the toilet. But if you pursue holiness and Christ-likeness, guess how long you'll have it? For all of eternity. Because that's what holiness does. It supersedes, it precedes, and trumps happiness. Number two, we've got to move quickly. What is the grand mission of the church? It's also to proclaim Jesus. Not just to have him, right, and and know we have him and know we have eternal life, that's good, but there's a problem with we just stop there. We live in a dark world, don't we? A very, very dark world who's following their own sin, their own vices, their own dreams and desires, and we learn that's a bad strategy. Now we have the light, we have the hope that these people need. So what should we do with that light? It's very simple. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the light of the world, because you have who living inside of you? Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. You are a city set upon a hill, and a city set upon a hill is not easily to be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be silly. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So he says, You are the light of the world. You have the light of the world. What should you do with that light? Hide it? Conceal it? Put it under your bed? Put it under a basket? No, of course not. Tuck it into the the four, 10, 15 walls of Crossroads Church and say, hey, we got Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Let's sing. Let's have potlucks. Let's talk about how great we have it. No. Take that light to the darkness. Shine it wherever you can so that those who do not have it can see it. And he said, listen, you're a city. Set on a hill. You guys know that concept, right? A city set up on a hill, you're going to notice it. And if you don't notice it, there's probably a problem. Either that's not a city, or the lights are burned out. But if a city is illuminated and sitting on a hill, someone's going to take notice of it, correct? He says that's what the church is. You're a city set up on a hill that cannot be hidden. Therefore, don't try. Don't try to hide yourselves. Don't try to hide your faith. Don't try to hide your hope. Go out and let it shine. In fact, you guys remember this old Christmas song? I think it's very fitting for the North Country, right? Go tell it on the mountain. Maybe not Mount Washington. You might hurt yourself. But find a mountain and shout it. And I don't mean that literally. But share it where those who in your life will hear it. Go share and proclaim the greatest news that was ever given to mankind. The Savior has come to the world. And we're about to celebrate next week. The fact that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. And we have that hope today that we are not dead. Death has been defeated. We are alive today. And there are many around us who are still in their sins, still in their death. And they need to hear this hope. So go tell it on a mountain. Jesus goes on and says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and pat you on the back? No. No. If you're doing that, that's a bad thing, okay? They're looking at the wrong person. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Because if they know anything about you, you're not capable of that. And for those who know both sides of my life, Mom does, pre-ministry and post-ministry, she knows one very clear thing. He is not capable of that on his own. And give glory to God the Father because only God the Father can produce good works in us that others can see and notice. Remember the old uh, newspaper boys? Extra, extra, read all about it. Or Jesus says it this way, let your light shine. Are you doing that? Because you have it. You have the hope. You have the hope that the entire world needs and the entire world is in a very bad place and going to an even worse place but you hold the hope that they need. You have the light that they need to see. What are you doing with it? Now, it's not your responsibility to make them accept it or receive it or respond to it. That's not up to you. But it is up to us to let that light shine, right? And it's that simple. So I like to think of it in this way. I like to think of it as a lighthouse because there's darkness all around and there's ships out in the darkness and they desperately need to come home. But how can they without the light? The answer is they cannot. They don't know where they're going. So the lighthouse beams this light around and around and around so that ships that are lost in the darkness can see the light and can navigate home. And who who is home? Jesus. Jesus. Because he's our creator. He created us. He loves us. We are his sheep. We are his people. He does not desire in in our destruction. He desires in our salvation. So we need to beam that light as many times as we can in our life so that ships who are lost in the darkness can come home. One more before we close today, and I know we're a little long in the tooth, but what is the grand mission of the church, part three? Simply to reflect Jesus. Now, that sounds very similar to copy. I understand that, and it it is. But I also think it's a little bit different. We need to copy Jesus, do what he does. We need to proclaim Jesus and shout that light and that gospel hope to everyone we know. But we also need to simply reflect Jesus. After he says, be imitators of God, there it is. It's very closely associated with copying God as beloved children. he says, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because what happens when you walk in love? You reflect. You reflect whose love? Christ's love. True Biblical love is a city set on a hill. Have you noticed that? That when you truly love others, truly love them from your heart, truly love them in a way that benefits them and there's no self-seeking involved in it, when you love others that way, guess who it resembles? Christ. Because Christ came to this earth to get what for himself? Nothing but a people. He came to offer up his life, give up his life, so that we could gain eternal life. Jesus says this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By what, Jesus? By our scripture memorization or our church attendance? What is it, Jesus? How will people know that we belong to you? He says, if you have love for one another. It's that simple. If you love other people, if you seek to love your neighbor, seek to love your church body, seek to love your enemy, you're going to stand out because that's not how the world operates. The world operates in a very self seeking manner John fifteen eight. Jesus said it this way my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples and all the fruit is all about love love bear fruit that is our job from now until Christ comes back bear fruit produce fruit and all the fruit all comes back to this one concept of love I'm going to share with you an illustration that I may have shared before, and I apologize if I have, but when I was engagement ring shopping for my wife back 15 years ago now, um, 15 years ago this fall, I, uh, I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature. Anyone else kind of skeptical by nature? You, just, it, you find it hard to believe things, and people at first glance, I'm that guy. I'm skeptical by nature. Yes, Ron. Yes, high five. <laughs> So I, wanted, I was engagement ring shopping for, for Janine because I wanted to ask her to marry me and, and thankfully she had given me a starting point of what ring she kind of likes because we had talked about marriage. But I ended up going to these jewelry stores wanting to find the best ring that I could afford and it, I knew it was going to take me a long time and it did take me a long time. But I ended up going to these jewelry stores and I walk in and I hadn't spent a lot of time in a jewelry store. I mean, why would have I, right? I was a young guy. <laughs> for the first time considering marriage. So I had not spent a lot of time in jewelry stores. So I walked into these jewelry stores and I wanted to see their engagement rings. So I remember going up to these cases and looking into all these rings going, my word, they're gorgeous. They're breathtaking, they're beautiful, but I have no idea where to start. And I'm a little skeptical by nature. So I'm looking at these rings inside these glass cases going, I get the system. (laughs) I understand what's going on here. You guys put them in these cases so that they'll look really pretty so that I'll just fork my money over to you, and then you bring it out, and it's not so good, right? I know the system. So as a natural skeptic, I went up to the lady and said, listen, would, could you do me a favor? Could you take these rings out of that little case and, so I can see them in front of my eye? Because I don't really trust your system. I didn't tell her that. But that's how I was thinking. I don't really trust your system. So could you take the ring out of the case and let me look at it with my own naked eye? Because then I'll really tell do we have something special here or not. And the lady was very nice. She took out... Eight to ten to twelve rings of her case and spent probably nine hours with me. (laughs) Letting me look at all the angles, like I knew what I was doing anyways. I had one of those like glass things I didn't. But I'm looking at it going, yeah, I guess it looks pretty good. And trying to figure out if there were blemishes and flaws in this, because I thought the case was doing the ring a favor. I honestly did. I thought the case was doing the ring a favor by making the ring look better than it was. But you notice what I noticed that day? It was actually the opposite. The closer the ring got to my eye, the better it looked. The ring was actually more beautiful outside of the case than it was inside the case. And that's when it dawned on me, like a dummy, the cases are not there primarily to display the beauty. They are there for security. But they do have a hefty responsibility of displaying the beauty of that ring. So I notice these ladies, the whole time I'm there, they're wiping it down, wiping down the glass case. They're making the... The light really reflect on that ring brilliantly, so that so all the light, you know, bounces right off the ring to the person's eye. And I noticed them; they were taking great care to make sure those light case, those cases were full of, uh, and not full of smudges. Excuse me, because what would have happened if I came into the store that day and they were all dirty? All the glass cases were dirty, the smudges and fingerprints all over them. I, with my few dollars, would have come in. Looked at the rings and probably said, no thanks. No thanks. These rings aren't worth my money. They're not worth my time. Now, the irony is the rings may have been stunning and probably were stunning. But if I came into the jewelry store and the glasses had been smudged and the lighting was all wrong and the, they had burnt out the lamps, I would have not noticed the brilliance and the beauty of those rings that I probably would have walked on by. Do you notice the analogy? Who's the ring? It's Jesus. Now, is Jesus better from looking at us, or is he better right in front of your face? And the answer is obviously. The closer you get to Jesus, the better. The more brilliant he will look. But we are in this amazing responsibility as his people to reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. People are going to look at Christians to see Jesus because Jesus is not here anymore upon the earth. Who's here? We're here. We are his people. We are his ambassadors. And so we are here with this amazing responsibility to reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? By walking in love. Not by being flawless and perfect but by making sure as much as it depends upon us by God's grace that our lives are full of holiness and love. Because when our lives are full of holiness and love, guess what people do? They notice. They notice. They can't not notice. It's stunning when you see true holiness and true love in, your, in front of your face. And then they will come to one conclusion that we already talked about. Who will they glorify? They will glorify the Lord. And then we'll come to the quick, quick conclusion they are not capable of that on their own. They must have had help. And who do they see? They see Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing responsibility that we have to not only copy, to not only proclaim, but to reflect. And our lives live this verse if we do it the right way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When we beam the holiness and glory and love of the Lord, we become the hands, the feet, and the mouth of Jesus. And I think that's beautiful. Now, I like different ways to help you remember what the grand mission of the church is. So that's a good one. Be the hands, the feet, and the mouth of Jesus. Because he's not here anymore. But I also thought of my own catchy one, because I kind of did this by accident. (laughs) I noticed I had this grand mission of the church with three things. And look what happened. CPR. I didn't plan that. But I started looking at it and going, oh, that's kind of cool. So I, I threw the graphic up there. If that helps you remember it, go for it, okay? CPR, copy, proclaim, and reflect. Guys, that is the grand mission of the church. That is our greatest privilege to do this for the world. To copy Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, and to reflect Jesus to this dark world. But you have to remember one thing. How do we do this? We do it together or we don't do it at all because God built it that way. We cannot copy, proclaim, and reflect Jesus the way he desires on our own. Remember, there's no Lone Rangers, there's no Jason Bournes, there's no Rambos. We either do it with the church or we don't do it because he's built it this way. The only way to ascend to the summit of true reflection, true imitation of Jesus is to do it together. That is the grand mission of the church. And the question is, and I know many of you have already joined us, but would you join us? Because that's what we're going to seek to do for the remainder of my ministry here is copy, proclaim, and reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. And thankfully, we live in one of the darkest areas in the entire country, maybe the world. I found this little graphic. I don't know if you can see that. I'm going to zoom in here. But they call it religiosity, which is a weird word. but, but you get it, right? Where is the most neglected part of the country as far as the gospel and churches are concerned? Vermont and New Hampshire. And guess where we live? On the border of Vermont and New Hampshire. Could we be more centrally located to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dark world? I don't think we could. I don't think we could be in a better position than on the border of Vermont and New Hampshire to beam the light of Jesus Christ. So if we CPR, if we go out and copy and proclaim and reflect... Guess what may happen? Not even guess. What will happen? Lost souls, lost ships will see that light, will look to Jesus Christ, and will come home. That is the grand mission of the church. And I couldn't encourage you more to be a part of this grand mission because it's the greatest mission, the greatest purpose, the church of Jesus Christ. Would you join us in this mission? I hope that you will. I know that you will. Let's bow and pray and give this mission to the Lord. Father, I feel like I've raced today through many things, through many texts. Uh, But Father, I hope one thing has been made abundantly clear. We have a tremendous privilege. A tremendous purpose. A tremendous responsibility to be your hands, to be your feet, and to be your mouth. Because you left us here for that very purpose. And that is your church. And that is the grand mission of the church. Help uh, Help us to understand what the church is. Help us to understand why we should be a part of it. Help us to understand how... We become a part of it and help us to understand the grand mission behind it. Because once we understand this grand mission, A, nothing can hold us back. Even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And B, we will find the greatest purpose that we've ever found, serving our Lord Jesus and proclaiming his goodness and his love to this dark world. Father, thank you for that grand mission. I I pray your blessing over Crossroads Church that we can go forward in copying, proclaiming, and reflecting Jesus. And we ask for your grace and for your help in that aspect. And we know that you'll give it to us. We love you, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand one more time and we'll sing together.